0: I have a special announcement for you today. For a limited time, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29. That's 50% off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show, as well as other shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gabfest. Slate's podcasts cover major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our shows also discuss what makes a song a smash, analyze what's going viral, and decode cultural mysteries. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash moodplus to access all of Slate's content and support our work. Again, that's just $29 for six months through October 28th, so sign up now at slate.com slash plus. And for that price, I will come and meet you in Brooklyn and walk to the Moonstruck House with you. Hello, and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Emmy Nietfeld, a writer, software engineer, and author of Acceptance, a Memoir. Her essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Rumpus, Vice, and other publications. Emmy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Danny. I am
0: just so pleased that you're here, and I'm especially pleased that we were able to um, help expand the little mnemonic device that you give people uh, learning how to pronounce your last name for the first time.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: for None of you know what it is because you weren't privy to our conversation earlier, but um, Emmy had said like a neatly felled tree um, and then I messed it up anyways. So all transparency here. Uh, I, I don't always know how to say things. Emmy, I'm so glad that you're here. Please save me for myself.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Danny. And yes, my name is Emmy Neatfeld, like a neatly felled tree when a lumberjack <laughs> takes real pride in their work.
0: And that you do imagine that is exactly how they would put it. Like, now that's a neatly felled tree.
1: I think exactly like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. Were I a lumberjack and and were I especially pleased with how uh, a given tree had, had fallen over?
1: You'd be a great lumberjack.
0: Very kind of you. I don't know that that's at all true. I spend so much of my life sitting, um, but I definitely would have like the enthusiasm.
1: I believe it. I think you'd give advice to the trees.
0: Like, here's how to live your life before I kill you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I I would be judicious. You know, I'd be like an old-timey woodsman. Uh, I wouldn't Mm. be like out out, um, like felling the Amazon. I would be like, it's the 1600s and I need one tree for the winter. I don't know how um, woodsmans uh, worked in the 1600s either. I think there was probably actually a significant amount of deforestation going on at the time.
1: Sadly, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But you wouldn't be contributing to it. Not
0: at all. Yeah, I would be, I would find a way to just like kill the perfect number of trees.
1: Not all woodsmen.
0: Something like that. Um, I think that this is probably an indicator that we should try to help someone uh, before I just um, take us down too many more tangents. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read our first letter and we're going to figure out how we can hopefully slightly improve their life. So the subject of this letter is defeated in Denver. I don't know how to talk to my friends or even to myself about a failed gender affirming procedure. I'm non-binary FTM, and I pursued facial masculinization through a major hospital a few months after my top surgery. The inserts failed and caused me a significant amount of pain and suffering for over five months. Finally, my surgical team affirmed that malpositioning and persistent infection were cause for removal. I was exhausted but not angry at this point. I just wanted relief. I never imagined that I would be financially responsible for an unavoidable removal, and I hadn't budgeted for the additional cost, having only saved up for the original procedure. I've appealed the decision and consulted lawyers to no avail. I feel angry, helpless, experimented upon, financially stressed, and unsupported. It was an uphill battle to even get access to this procedure, and now I feel like all my friends and family consider the entire thing elective, awkward, and unworthy of patience. I would love to never talk about it again— and erase it from my memory, but I'm struggling. I want some kind of sympathy, and it's hard to carry this on my own. How can I keep the narratives of shame, self-blame, and general cringe from consuming me? I loved that last question, not because I was like, oh good, you're really like in the thick of it. Um, I just kind of loved the sort of like, I don't know. I felt like there was a sort of winsome self-awareness really present in this letter and sort of like shame is a problem. Cringe is a problem. Fear of appearing cringe to other people is a problem. Um, And I I liked that. I I found myself really liking this letter writer and just really sorry that they're in this position.
1: Me too. My heart goes out for them. Such a horrible, it's such an awful position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I have so much empathy for this, for this person. Um, When I was reading this letter, I zoomed in on the letter writer feeling experimented on. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough in medicine, where sometimes doctors don't know how a procedure is going to go, or frankly, aren't completely honest with patients. And it sounds like the letter writer is left feeling like their friends and family kind of blame them in a way.
0: Right, or or just feel sort of like, Maybe not like I blame you, but like, it's a little unseemly to complain about this. You didn't really have to do this. You kind of brought it upon yourself. It's a little embarrassing that uh, on top of having surgery that didn't work, you now want sympathy for it. And I won't necessarily say that outright, but I will clearly give off the impression of cringiness. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't, you know, letter writer, like, I don't always want to come down on the side of uh, it's never okay to just to try to erase something from your memory. Like I'm all for a little judicious repression. So certainly if you just want to like put down a couple of journal entries and then give it a shot, you always can. Like just like, well, I'm going to just like put this behind me and see if being in the 50s works. Um, You can always give it a shot. If it goes terribly, you can do something else. But I do just want to like throw that out there. If part of you just feels like I really want to put this aside, have like one afternoon where I cry it out and then I just try to move on. I don't know. I I think there are worse things in the world than giving that a try. I don't think that that's going to be the best way out for you or the only way out. But uh, I kind of liked that you included that as an option, even though you're like, it doesn't feel like it would necessarily work beautifully. And I'm not across the board anti uh, let us never speak of this again. Every once in a while, I think it's useful to pull that out.
1: Yeah. I also found myself wondering what kind of community the letter writer had, because it seems like something where it would be really important to have friends and family who, even if they're not trans or non-binary themselves, that, who are allies and who have some familiarity with the different surgeries, with the process, with the barriers to care. Um, because it seems some, like something that's pretty hard for people who don't know trans people personally to really understand why it's so important.
0: Yeah, and you know... It didn't seem to me like many of the letter writers, friends and family were also trans, but my read on this was like, generally they're okay about trans stuff in the way that like, maybe all of them would consider themselves somewhere in the like ally group, but -hmm. that this is like far enough into the weeds that it's just unfamiliar to them. They don't get it. They feel like it's just elective and confusing. And so I was wondering if, I, I know that there are a number of different types of surgeries where there are often post-surgical support groups. Like Mm. I know that a lot of people who get bariatric surgeries, there are post-bariatric surgery support groups. Offhand, I'm aware of like people who get back surgeries, which are often like inconsistent in their results, sometimes have support groups. Um, I I know that there are some like private, closed Facebook groups for say like trans guys seeking different kinds of bottom surgery. They're usually invite only, but sometimes you can still find them if you search for them. And I'm curious if there are any, along the lines of people pursuing, like, facial masculinization. I don't know of any offhand, but I would really encourage the letter writer to seek out specifically post-surgical support groups um, or support groups, whether remote or in-person, for trans people pursuing various, like, gender-affirming surgeries. Because those, I think, are going to be the people who will have the most time and energy to discuss this with you. And it's not quite the same level of work of like, I want to try to convince my sibling or my close friend who's not great on this subject into being different. Like sometimes it's nice to just go meet with a group of people who are like already there with you, if that makes sense.
1: That's such a great
0: suggestion. I I, I wish I, I really wish I did say, like have like here are two like Facebook groups that I can get you an invitation to. But sometimes that's the nice thing about a support group is these are not people you have to have like external ongoing relationships with. Um, and you know that you have something in common. And, and I often want to just like really plug support groups because they can be really great.
1: I was also thinking about the level of financial stress in this letter and how I think for the letter letter writer, like even if you try to put it behind you and repress this experience to some extent, that level of financial burden is still something that must weigh really heavily. And yeah, yeah and I would really hope that friends and family can kind of at least see see that part of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think some some parts of this experience really do seem like they are specific to getting a gender-affirming procedure. And other parts of it resonate with like medical experiences that I've had or that I know people who are cisgender have had. And I almost wonder if there's a way to like maybe reframe some of the conversations. Mm. And I don't want to, I don't want to suggest like making it like hiding the reality of like what this surgery was and why it was happening. But I don't know. I really want, I really want the letter writer to be able to have the same support from friends and family that we get for, you know, everyday procedures that more people are familiar with.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I think that is useful. And then I also want to offer a possible suggestion in case that continues to not go well. Uh, And that is letter writer. If part of what you need is just, I actually need to do like just damage control and say like, if I don't have that kind of support that I'm looking for from my people right now, I can at least limit how much of my vulnerabilities that I share with them. So, like, maybe that looks like, okay, I have heard your reaction to this. I I don't think that we're going to convince each other of anything one way or the other. Let's just drop it for now. Um, And to give Mm -hmm. yourself permission to say, like, I need, you know, if if the best I can do right now is give myself solo time to write about my feelings, think about them in private, um, console myself to the best of my ability. And then not share those like vulnerable feelings with someone who's going to, you know, maybe hurt me further by saying, yeah, but you kind of brought this on yourself or don't you think you're making a kind of big deal out of this? Like at least you can be protective in that sense. And I, I really want to stress, I don't mean like never share your feelings with someone just because you think they might not have the reaction you're hoping for. But like if you've tried having this conversation a few times and they're just only able to be supportive up to a certain point, it can be useful to protect yourself and, and look for other other places to seek that out. And again, even if you can't find like a post-surgery support group, maybe looking for a like trans support group in your area will be a, a little bit useful because at least you'll be able to talk there um, without fear of like, uh, oh, and I'm going to have to see you on Thursday for movie night.
1: That's such a good suggestion.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's just really hard when you know, like I, I'm having trouble paying for this financially I feel exhausted and like taken advantage of by my medical team and everyone in my life feels like this was just something I shouldn't have done in the first place. Like that's a really difficult place to be. And so, um, I would just really encourage you to look for safe, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not like clandestine, but like Trustworthy, closed lipped people who aren't going to like go running around, like sharing with everyone else in your life what you've said. um, Any kind of support groups, even like, you know, I wouldn't normally say like go search subreddits, but I'm wondering if there's even just like, like on the FTM subreddits uh, to just look and see like, did anybody like to search for like masculinization surgeries or procedures and to see like, does anyone there have a shared experience who might be able to like email occasionally? Just anyone who's been in your situation. I think will be really helpful rather than like, let me explain it from scratch and you have to imagine it.
1: Yeah, I also hope, letter writer, that you're able to let go of some of the shame that you feel internally. And I think it's really hard when when our friends and family, to some extent, shame us to then like let go of that. But I just want to say like this situation, it does not sound like it's your fault at all. And there's additional ways where Today, like gender affirming procedures are fraught. And it also sounds like a type of situation that happens to people of all genders where medical procedure does not go as planned. And I do think, you know, sometimes we blame people more than others. And also, it's not, you know, it's not something that sounds like it could have really been foreseen or that you were warned about. And so I hope that you're able to be compassionate to yourself about it.
0: Yeah, it it does seem like the letter writer has maintained a pretty clear head, at least reading between the lines of like, I've appealed the decision, I've consulted lawyers, like, even some of the language that they used in the letter was like, you've like, you're familiar with the lingo of like, surgical uh, outcomes and like, um, you know, how you would discuss them with a lawyer or how you would discuss them in the context of like, uh, you know, please don't do this again to other people. And I think that, Gosh, yeah, I've just been leaning towards, like, you've maybe come up against the limits of certain, like, well-meaning but outside support of, like, yes, I love you for being trans, but, like, some of the nitty-gritty seems, like, weird and excessive, and I wouldn't have said anything if you got the surgery and it went well, but when you got it and it didn't go well, then it really seemed to me like, wow, here's an actual, like, in real-time failure at masculinization what is the typical response to failure to masculinize, you know, contempt, distance, disgust, shame, pity, uh, avoidance. And letter writer, I don't say any of that in the sense of like, you yourself have like actually failed conclusively. I just mean like that is, I think, what you're experiencing, which is a part of like ongoing uh male socialization that can be acutely painful for anyone. And so I would hope that you're able to make connections with other people who have been in similar positions, that maybe someday you will be able to be useful to someone else who is struggling with like a difficult post-FMS procedure um, because you know just what it's like to be in that position. Not not in the sense of it will all have been for the best because you'll be able to help someone else, but that you will be able to find like meaning and connection with other people based on suffering that you yourself have experienced that you shouldn't have and that I'm sorry you've experienced. Um, I, I hope that for you. But yeah, I would just say, you know, don't try to draw water from a well that you think is empty. Look for confidential places where you can share, whether that be with like a trans therapist or trans specific support groups or post-surgical complication support groups that you feel like are reasonably trans inclusive. Seek those places out when you can't find that safety, write it in a journal that like no one else can look at, like protect that part of yourself if you don't believe that other people will look out for it. And I think that's just it. And again, you know, let us know, like if you also like you're like, I wrote it out and then I really just tried to like move on, pretend it didn't happen. I always want to hear like whenever that does work. So actually, that's just like a blanket invitation. If you have ever decided to both like acknowledge something happened, process your feelings about it and then just go with, you know what, I'm going to try to see how much of that I can genuinely put behind me. If it works, let us know. I'm I'm curious, like what's the biggest thing anyone's ever uh, really put in the past? Maybe it's nothing. Maybe no one's ever left anything in the past. We'll find out.
1: I want to hear those stories.
0: I do too. Yeah.
1: Um, Of course, maybe they won't remember,
0: right? Like if it's truly successful, it's like, oh yeah, I guess that was kind of a big deal 10 years ago, but who cares? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
2: Just go to ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy, com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
0: I'm going to have you read our second letter, and I just want to preface the second letter with the letter writer uses the term Asperger's repeatedly. You and I, I think, are, are probably aware, listeners may be aware, uh, Asperger's was removed as a as a diagnosis from the DSM back in 2013. So... It's been now almost a decade since any uh, like doctor or, or medical professional has, has given that diagnosis. So for whatever reason, this letter writer is not aware that this is no longer a diagnostic term. But I, I just wanted to mention that rather than edit it out entirely, because um, I think it actually speaks to the letter writer's kind of understanding of like, being on the spectrum and, and will be useful for, for how we give our
1: answer. So the subject is worth the effort. How can I leverage my elderly mother's belief that my father has Asperger's into a useful conversation, especially when I think the person who has Asperger's might be her? Should I even try? My mother doesn't have many friends and has a hard time connecting to people. I've spent much of my adult life trying to set up boundaries while still trying to help meet her needs. She had a difficult childhood and worked hard to give my brother and I a solid childhood. I'm grateful for that. She's also sought out treatment for her depression and anxiety over the years, but she walks away from therapists and family members who try to get her to see the world in less isolating ways. She always wants me to attend webinars and read articles about holistic health. I'm happy this works for her, but I'm not interested. I spend about 20% of my mental energy on my mother issues, and I really want to change that. I've met with a therapist about it. Things with my dad are easier. He's quiet, affable, and doesn't ask for much from me. He's not perfect, but I find him comforting and easy to love. His relationship with my mom isn't great, but he rarely complains. My mom is frustrated because he can't talk about anything emotional, quote unquote. I think this is a defense mechanism. Several times a year, mom becomes angry and deeply sad and takes to her bed anywhere from a few hours to a few days. She wants someone to sit by her bed and listen to the same monologue that she's been delivering for years, that she's tried so hard to enrich herself, but that no one is willing to meet her on her level. It's exhausting, unchanging, and my stomach knots up just thinking about it. I can see my father shut off like a light switch when these moods descend on her. He becomes nearly unreachable. I can see why this hurts my mother, but I understand it. My mother's latest theory about their marital issues is her belief that my dad has Asperger's syndrome and she tries to use this as a rallying cry to enlist my support. I was willing to entertain this thought and did some research. My inexperienced opinion is that my dad doesn't have Asperger's, but my mom might. She fits many of the criteria. I know this is a big diagnosis, and I'm not qualified to make it, but it sure seems to explain a lot of my mother's behavior. They're both in their late 70s, so it's not likely either of them is going to undertake any big changes at this stage in life. But she's in good health and might live for many more years. Do you have any suggestions about how to leverage her interest in Asperger's into some self-reflection? I've thought about mentioning this possibility to her, but any feedback other than sympathetic listening is usually met with hostility or like I never said anything at all. I know that Asperger's comes with a lot of strengths, but the characteristics that make me think of my mom are less flattering and might be hurtful to point out. I generally try to put on my Mr. Rogers hat when I deal with her and draw on whatever reserves of compassion I have. However, those reserves are shrinking with each passing year. Any thoughts? I love your show and the deep dives you are willing to take into the problems of your listeners. Gosh, yeah. So, you
0: know, another long, complex one. Did it strike you as well, the, like, outmoded mention of Asperger's? Like, I found myself really struck by that. Like, if this letter writer has done any research about the term, I would have imagined that that would be one of the first things that popped up was they don't do this anymore. And so I was so curious like where they were doing their research that that wasn't being mentioned.
1: That was really fascinating to me. And it made it seem even more like this armchair diagnosis of Asperger's was even more of a red herring. Hmm. What really stuck out to me is that this the letter writer spends 20% of their mental energy on their mom. And that that's a lot of mental energy. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I don't want to like say to
0: this letter writer, none of you, like nobody in your family should ever consider like the autism spectrum as like an interesting subject to like investigate, uh, like with a respectable doctor or, or psychologist just like, There's a lot of like, I know I shouldn't be armchair diagnosing, but I want to going on Mm -hmm. here that like coupled with clearly outdated information is giving me a lot of pause. So like you say right now, my big problem is I'm spending too much of my mental energy on my mom. And right now it kind of feels like the key is if I can convince her to take the energy she's been um, putting towards diagnosing my father, towards diagnosing herself, then she will The implication, I think, is she'll get a diagnosis and she'll get better. She'll be easier to deal with. She won't be difficult in the ways that she's been difficult before. And I think that is, uh, you know, there's a lot of leaps there. Like maybe if you could convince her to turn that direction towards herself, she might get a diagnosis. Maybe if she got a diagnosis, she would find useful like tools Maybe she wouldn't. Maybe she would get more difficult. Maybe she would be equally difficult. Maybe the two of you would then just get locked in a back and forth trying to like pass around the label of Asperger's like it's pin the tail on the donkey. And so I think if your goal letter writer is spend less of my mental energy on my mother, the solution is not going to be convince her to pursue a specific diagnosis. It's going to be something else. Like the solution to your problem is not going to look like finally convince my mother to come to my way of thinking which it seems like that's been your hope for a very long time. Does that strike you as reasonable? I don't want to be like harsh on the letter writer. I just I think they need a redirect here.
1: I that sounds really reasonable to me and it sounds like the letter writer's mom has already thought about kind of diagnoses and issues that could be going on under the surface with the holistic medicine stuff and that the letter writer you know completely understandably has not felt like it is useful or interesting to to engage in that and mostly I I think just like you I zoomed in on how it seems like the letter writer really wants to change their their own life and decouple their mom's issues from their from their mental state and I don't think you're being too harsh because it didn't seem likely that the Asperger's diagnoses that she was looking for that's outdated and is never is never going to be assigned to anyone was going to be a solution, a solution at all. Right. I mean, to me, the key of that whole aspect of this
0: relationship was the line, my mother's latest theory about their marital issues is disbelief. She tries to use this as a rally and cry to enlist my support. Letter writer, I would really encourage you, like, if you're at this point where your mother is complaining so, in such a detailed way about her relationship with your father to you that she's like, and here's what I think causes it all. Like you've blown way past reasonable and appropriate adult child hearing their parents like talk about their problems. And so I would really encourage you to, you know, if, if your mom is getting into that level of detail of complaints about her partner with you to say, I love you so much. This sounds really difficult. I'm not really qualified to help you and dad navigate like this level of your marriage just because as your kid, I'm not really an objective outside listener. So I need to draw a line here. I, I can't have this conversation any further. And doesn't mean I don't care about you. I want you guys to work through this, but you need to talk about this with peers, with friends, with a therapist, with each other, uh, but not me. Mm. And, you know, she might not like that. She might really disagree with you. She might say, like, but you used to. And, you know, then you can fight it out on that point. But I think that needs to be your line. I, I think from now on, like her complaints about your father, you need to lovingly make it clear I've I've heard you out a lot in the past. I think that was a mistake. Again, not because you don't deserve a sounding board. Just as a child of your relationship with my father, uh, I can't be an objective sounding board for you guys. I can't do that. So that might be a boundary you have to defend frequently. And so it, it, it might feel at least at first like, now I'm doing a lot of talking with my mom. But it will at least protect you from hearing ongoing complaints about your father, which, again, you're not in a place to do shit about. Um, and I think will going forward help you cut back from that 20%. Like at least you'll know I have one line and that's just, I can't talk about this with you. I love you, but you got to find somebody else. And that's it. That's all you got to say. And I think you need to defend that line pretty strenuously. And if the idea of doing so is really overwhelming, I would encourage you to seek out your own therapist to, you know, enlist your friends, your partner, uh, maybe a sibling or two. But find out what support you would need in order to say, like, I can't hear you complain about my dad anymore. Again, not like you're a monster for complaining, just like you're barking up the wrong tree.
1: I love that because I noticed a lot of responsibility that the letter writer was taking for their mom's problems. Yeah.
0: And it's totally inappropriate of her to, like you're you're his kid. Like, you're not going to be able to be like, Dad, you need to straighten up and talk about your feelings more.
1: I know. I Reading this, I felt a lot of sympathy for the dad as well. And I don't think that's the letter writer's responsibility either, but it felt like the letter writer took a lot of responsibility for, you know, they call it supporting their mom, but it kind of felt like trying to fix her problems. And that stood out to me because it's something that, that I really relate to. I saw a lot of my own parents in the letter writer's mom. And I think it's often a role that kids of parents who, who have these types of, you know, con interpersonal conflicts, like kids often get shoehorned into the role of like taking care of their parents. Mm-hmm. And so it, while it seems super well-meaning to want to give your parent as much support as you can, it also might be trapping the letter writer. It sounds like it is trapping the letter writer in this cycle of feeling a responsibility that doesn't necessarily exist and then not setting those boundaries, which, you know, might actually not be what what the mom needs.
0: Yeah. And just like you know, I, I just don't know a lot of kids who have ever, like, successfully intervened in their parents' marriages. Like, you know, there's, there's a reason that that's not, like, a thing that's really common in life. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you have good, reasonable expectations, letter writer, when you say, like, I get they're both in their late 70s, it's unlikely they're going to make huge changes. Um, and, and that's why I think focusing on, an intervention that you have a fair amount of control over, which is how much you listen to her complaints about your father. um, That's, that's your best option because that doesn't require that she go get a diagnosis or totally rethink the way that she sees herself um, or even the way that she sees your father. It just means like you can no longer be the place she goes to with those complaints. If she comes back at you with a guilt trip or, you know, she might do that. So like prepare yourself for, it's possible that at least her initial reaction will be something like, no one's willing to meet me on my level. This always happens to me. Um, And again, your line just really needs to be, mom, I'm sorry, I get that this is difficult, but I I really can't do this with you. Um, And to just hold that line, you don't have to get in a debate about it. You just have to like, let her know what your limit is and be like loving, but firm. Um, It's a really reasonable request. And, you know, She might act out at first, but if you stay pretty calm and pretty consistent, she will learn just as you probably did when you were a very little kid and like throwing a little bit of a tantrum that, you know, no meant no in this situation. And, you know, I'm I'm tempted also to kind of get into like, are things with your dad easier or like, does he just not want anything from you? And that can, I don't know, like, I don't want to rank your mother and your dad. Let's just go ahead and say, They're two different people um, with different ways of relating to the world. And it may be that some of the things that have made him a relatively chill dad have made him a somewhat difficult husband. Like, I can definitely imagine why you say it feels like he doesn't really want anything from me or ask for much from me, which, again, like, can be great with a parent. But, like, if that's your partner, that can sometimes feel, like, incredibly closed off. And, And, again, that's not to say, like, therefore your mother is acting reasonably and doing good things. Just like. Yeah, I can imagine that like that's pretty chill in a dad and maybe less than ideal in a husband. But again, her her solution is not going to be get my kid to like listen to all my problems. It's got to be something else like and, and there you have to like learn to like let them fight it out. Like it might be really painful to think of like, oh, God, that means like my mom's in bed somewhere like yelling at the ceiling and my dad's just like zoning out in another room and like that's really hard. But either they're just going to keep having that fight a few times a year until they die or they'll figure something out, but the solution's not going to come from our kid came up with a really great idea.
1: I do appreciate that the that the letter writer is very focused on finding solutions and on being effective and not really on like, oh, here's what's right, or here's who's right, and here's what's wrong. And that felt really healthy to me. Um, like, it seems like letter writer, you have an incredible sense of perspective of you know at least of your your parents limits to change. And one other thing that I zoomed in on was at the end when you were talking about putting on the Mr. Rogers hat and drawing on the reserves of compassion. Because that that also felt really exhausting to me.
0: Yeah, I mean For all that I loved that show when I was a kid, I think there's a limit to putting on your Mr. Rogers hat. Like that was a TV character that he played where he talked to two children he didn't really have to interact with. So uh, as a model for dealing with your mom, again, not to say like, wow, that's terrible. Never think of Mr. Rogers. Reverse immediately. Just like that can't be everything, right? Like he wasn't dealing one-on-one with his mother on that show every day.
1: Mm. And I think that there's this expectation sometimes that to be a good friend or family member, that we have to kind of always be the listener, like always be compassionate in the way that like a paid therapist would be. And seeing some of the details in this letter, I wondered if there was a lot that the letter writer that you're holding in and that like that they haven't thought would be like effective to say in terms of changing... The mom's behavior, and so has like refrained from from saying it, potentially at a high cost to to them. And so I was thinking, you know, like even if your mom will get upset, or you feel like it's not going to change her behavior, I think sometimes it might be worth, you know, weighing the pros and cons, you know, saying how you feel or what you see, because that's just such a it's such a burden to keep it inside. And if at a certain point, like, keeping those feelings in is harder than, like, letting them out, I think that can be a good choice. Yeah, and there's, like,
0: that tension of, like, I feel like if I say anything to my mom that's not some version of, you're right, I'm sorry, she's going to throw such a fit that it will be worse for me than if I'd never said anything. So, letter writer, you never have to have a fight with your mom if you don't want to. You don't have to go further than, like, setting one gentle boundary and, like, maintaining it. But... If you do ever want to try having a conversation where you attempt to be honest with her and don't, like, let her have a freak out and then, like, hold your ground, like, I want you to consider that as a possibility. Again, you don't have to do that, but you might want to. I I think that's just, like, a good thing to bear in mind. Like, feedback, anything other than sympathetic listening gets hostility. Like, I really felt that one of just, like... I both want to be compassionate and I also kind of feel like I have to be compassionate because if I ever try to be honest with my mom, she'll just yell at me until she dies.
1: Yeah. We can't predict how other people are going to react or control it. And it seems like Letter Writer has been putting their emotions really on the back burner for a long time in this relationship. And so I hope that they're able to like prioritize their experience of what's happening. Right. Like, I don't think they're going to start becoming callous or like not caring about or loving their mom. But I also hope, you know, they said their mom is in their seventies and she could, she could live for many more years. And I hope the letter writer also gets to like live fully emotionally for those years too. Yeah. And, you know,
0: I I don't ever want to like encourage someone who's like already having a difficult relationship with their mom to like just like go for broke. But, I do want to just throw this out there. You say that anything less than sympathetic listening gets met with hostility. So, you know, you may find at some point that you just want to get in a fucking fight and just go for it. Like, well, she's going to be mad at me no matter what I do as long, like, unless I am sponging her forehead and saying they're there. So like, I'm actually just going to go for it. We're just going to have a fucking fight. And um, again, you really don't have to if, if you hear that and you're just like, that sounds awful. I'd rather do anything else in the world. But if you just want to say like, mom, I need you to knock it off. And uh, I'm really sick of this and it really bothers me that you have been like leaning on me for this for so long and you need to like find a solution that's not go to bed and monologue at people because that's really hard to deal with. And then you just want to kind of like see what the fallout is. You have my permission. You have my permission. You are allowed to fight with your mother properly once in your life. You don't have to. And I'm not saying like go off the leash and like tell her she's a monster and like (laughs) list every every single thing she's ever done wrong but like if you do at some point just want to say like well i'm already in trouble i might as well earn it sometimes that can be useful sometimes it helps to have a fight with your parent before they die you know like a real one where you show up for it
1: i feel like we don't give enough positive news cycle to that big big fight before your parents die right do it when your parents are still healthy and well if you're ever going to do it that's my fight with your
0: mom in her 40s (laughs) yeah um and, and, you know, certainly it's, it sounds like they've had plenty of conflict with their mom. I don't want to suggest that, like, they've never, like, gotten into it. It just sounds like they've really erred in the direction of uh, placating and compassion. Not that those are the same thing, just, like, the sort of spectrum is sometimes it's placating, sometimes it's just trying to maximize my compassion. And compassion is great, but that doesn't mean you never say, like, this is really frustrating. Like, you can yeah. fight with someone without going nuclear,
1: And it's cliche, but sometimes compassion does mean saying the difficult thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this feels, sorry, not to like try too hard to find a segue, but I'm thinking about this like in terms of acceptance and how sometimes ideas of acceptance can get sort of like spiritually bypassed into like, I must accept Mm -hmm. everything at all times. I should never be angry. I should never try to resist things as they are. Like acceptance means always being chill with whatever's happening. And I'm just wondering like how much that's uh, been like an idea that you've kind of wrestled with or whether that feels like something that um, was on your mind uh, in your own, you know, work about acceptance.
1: What a good segue. I've Yeah, I thought about that so much. So my book is titled Acceptance. And I did I I, like
0: implied that, but I didn't come out (laughs) and say it. I didn't imply
1: that. But like it's it's titled acceptance in part because when I was a young, I was like 13, and my parents had mental illnesses. So I really relate to this letter. But I was, I was in therapy and I was receiving a type of therapy where people were telling me all the time, like, you need to accept your situation. Right. They Mm -hmm. called it like radical acceptance. And it was like, you're suffering because you're miserable because you refuse to accept your situation and and i think it, acceptance can be a great thing and it can also be twisted in that way and like even as a teenager i was like i don't think you're you're right about this and so like i was in foster care for a while and homeless for a while and the whole time i was like i think i can change things by going to college and by going to, like, a top university. And so I ended up doing that and in the meantime really looked at these ideas of, like, grit and resilience and how, like, we often have as a culture this expectation that when bad things happen to you, you have to, like, bounce back mm-hmm. and, like, claim that you're made stronger for them. So that's what I was looking at in this book. And um, I also talk a lot about my relationship with my mom who reminds me a lot of this letter writer and a lot of the expectations that we have around like kids and their parents, right? Yeah. And how we have to just be like completely forgiving of like whatever happens, the endless compassion. And for me, like that, that really weirded me down. So when I see this letter, I'm definitely like speaking from that, you know, about how I always thought like if I could get into Harvard, like I can, I can help my mom and I can turn things around for her which in the end like for me was not true and i doubt is true for that many people
0: yeah I, I it is so i think as soon as someone like narrates your own story back to you with the sort of like stamp of resilience or redemption or look at how much you have been through often not necessarily with that intention the emphasis becomes all about the finality of and you are good now. Like, this only serves as a backdrop to your present success. And you, you, you're you done. You're over it. You've handled it.
1: Absolutely. And that can be really dehumanizing. And it can also take away the burden to change systems that are messed up. And so, you know, I do think some, as we talked about with the first letter, like, I agree with you that some repression can be healthy, like some, like, leaving it in a box and moving on. But... I'm really critical of when people like when you tell someone else, like take the bad things that happen to you and put them in a box. And that's like your your duty to be somebody who's like moved on from them.
0: Right. It It is so tricky because like when I think about my own like family estrangement, I can go really back and forth between sometimes it feels like my desire for pity, support, um, urgency from other people is bottomless. Mm-hmm. And that like if I don't, try to find ways to, I don't even want to say these with a cringe, but genuinely like heal and move on, not pretend it never happened um, or not move on as if it never occurred to me, but just genuinely like find a way to work through it and no longer have it feel like the biggest thing. Um, Because otherwise it's just like, I would want everyone to be in a state of emergency with me all of the time and constantly saying, this just happened, this just happened. You need everything. Um, And I don't want to live that way. And I don't like, I mean, I remember like, I've spent more of my life than I care to count just really stuck in like a fantasy of such rage that, again, that's like, I don't want to say like, I just want to forgive people and be okay. But it's just like, I truly don't want this to be the biggest thing in my life because it's just unpleasant. It doesn't feel good. But I also would not want to try to get there by just saying like it's over. Sheer willpower is the way forward. I will simply, on my own, decide not to have any more feelings about this, uh, starting now.
1: Oh man, I think it's about how do we figure out like a middle, a middle way, you know, that's not being completely mired in the past and is not putting it all in a box and closing the box and taping it shut, but with like living with the fact that bad things happen to us. And they affect us and they change us. And even if we do like heal, you know, you, you'll you never get the time back from that rage that you felt, right? Mm-hmm. And that will never be healed in that way.
0: And in some ways, like, I, I'm lucky in as much as like, I don't have to have a difficult ongoing relationship with my mother. Like, that would be incredibly challenging. Like, I at least have the gift of we don't talk whatever I need to work out in my like psychic relationship with her, I get to do that without also having to deal with her as a person in in my day-to-day life, which is a a real gift uh, because, you know, it would be a lot harder um, if I were also trying to do that. So I often feel like, especially when I'm advising someone about like a really difficult parent that they've been dealing with for decades, I feel a little bit like, not like I got off easy, but just like, sorry, like I did get a pretty sweet out of just like She's a monster. Uh, and I never have to talk to her or think well of her ever again until I dance at her funeral.
1: Spoiler alert, like I'm estranged from both of my parents as well. <laughs> and I, I've taken a lot of solace in this podcast because estrangement often gets such a bad rap. Yeah. And I, I put off that decision for years because I thought there's no way this ends well. And for me too, like it, it has ended well. Yeah. Like, I'm so much happier. I've had all these other relationships that I don't think could have been possible if I was still devoting so much energy to, um, specifically to holding on to that relationship with my mom and trying to fix her.
0: Right. Right. No, I mean, I, like, I- I'm sure you've seen this pop up uh, this year, but, like, Jeanette McCurdy's book, I, I had never even, like, heard of iCarly. Like, that came out when I was in college, so I was very, like, out of the Nickelodeon world at that point. So I, I didn't know anything about, like, her youthful career. I say youthful. She's 30. She is a youthful person. Um, but like when her, her memoir, I'm glad my mom died, came out earlier this year and getting to see some of the the press for that, I felt very like, oh man, I'm so glad someone's doing this. I'm so glad she's doing this. I haven't yet been ready to like read the book myself, but it feels like this really lovely, bracing, wry way of thinking about estrangement. Um, that's not just like, oh gee, sometimes you have to do it, but you should always feel guilty. And of course, obviously like, Her mother is actually dead, uh, which is a a different kind of estrangement entirely.
1: Yeah. But it totally blasts the stigma to see her, you know, holding an urn full of confetti on the cover of the book. I loved
0: that image (laughs) so
1: much. That was beautiful.
0: Yeah. It reminded me, do you remember, there's like an old mushroom hunting book that's like very popular in certain, like, I guess, foraging communities called, like, All That the Rain Promises. Wow. This is, this. sorry, I sound crazy. It's called All the Rain, Promises, and More. And there's the guy on the cover, it's like always, it's a famous like foraging book. The guy on the cover is like wearing an old tuxedo and carrying like a French horn and has this really mischievous and maniacal look on his face. And he's doing the same pose that she's doing on the cover of I'm Glad My Mom Died. And I used to work at a Borders back in college, and I sold tons of copies of that book because it was in Northern California. And as soon as I saw hers, I was like, it's wow. the same guy. And, and I don't know why, but like, I put them together in my head for some reason, just like the promise of like decaying new life out of death within like uh, mushrooms growing on old dead trees and then like her book. I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than those are two books that I think go well together.
1: You should have her on the podcast and ask if that was the inspiration.
0: I mean, I don't have her email address, uh, but I will put it out there if, uh, if Jeanette is listening to this advice podcast <laughs> and she's not tired of talking about her book and her relationship with her mom, you know, uh, I'd love to have her on the show any old time. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, uh, do the show with us. And, um, Thank you just so much for sharing uh, your thoughts and feelings about families and estrangements. And I I hope that everybody checks out uh, Acceptance because I think it's really, uh, you know, meaningful and um, honest uh, in, in really like thorny and beautiful ways. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Danny.
0: And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday.
1: It seems like there's a real breakdown of communication here and that the letter writer is trying to solve it herself, right? And thinking like, oh, if I just have like the right techniques, like I can fix the fact that my partner isn't willing to engage with me on this. Or he's
0: perfectly willing to engage with me, isn't willing for me to engage, is trying to prohibit my engagement and is saying that unless I share this identity category, I must never speak and I must smile upon his violent comments. And I just got to say, letter writer, there's not an identity category in the world that makes violent cruelty and flippancy like cool and fun in a boyfriend. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.